Hey, this is Alex Terranova, and this is the Dream Mason Podcast. We've been taught to behave, to fit in, to follow the rules, but Dream Masons reject conventional thought. Dream Masons are rebels. They take a chisel to the marble that is typical traditional life. They carve out brilliance and broadcast it to the world. Join me for another chapter as we unmask convention, embrace the rebels within us, and more deeply come to explore the complex and agitated edges of our existence. Now, before we get started, please don't be a rebel yet and grab your phone and hit that little button that says subscribe. Thank you. Because your dreams don't build themselves. Welcome back to another episode of the Dream Mason podcast. I am your host, Alex Terranova. We are here to record another episode of conversations on race, privilege, and inclusion. Um, man, these, these episodes have been so eye-opening and awakening for me to hear other people's perspectives. So I don't know at what point this one will air in the mix of the others that I've done, but I have talked to people um, across di different spectrums of men, women, um, different races, um, different professions, different ages. Uh, people keep coming out of the woodwork saying they want to have this conversation, which feels such like such an honor that I that I actually get to do this with them because this is for a lot of people a really vulnerable space, uh, a really sensitive space, and um, I just know I'm learning a lot. You know, I, I think. When I started doing this, the, the first thought I had is, I only know what it's like to look through my lenses, to be me, to experience life the way I've seen it. And with each of these episodes, sorry, I'm laughing. This is, I have two little puppies in the background that are growling at each other, um, that uh, are fighting. Um, so I apologize for that, if you hear that in the background. Um, but I'm learning so much about how, like, the way I see the world not just the way, you know, I used to look at it from a coaching's perspective of how I see it around money and time, but now I'm looking at it from the perspective of simply because of things about my birth, because I was born with like light skin or white skin, that conversations my parents didn't necessarily have to have with me, that somebody was born with a different color skin, their parents have conversations with them that are very different. And I don't think that there's a right or wrong. It's simply to understand the way that someone else, because someone else lives in the way someone else experiences life, because then we can have compassion. We can have understanding. We can connect. Everything doesn't have to be a debate. It can simply be like, Oh my God, I didn't even realize that was how you grew up or where you grew up. So a reminder, as you're listening to this, I've created these because I'm, my intention is to create empathy, to create understanding, to create a conversation and bring people together to be able to see what life looks like from someone else's perspective. Because I do really believe that if we can see life from someone else's perspective, they become more human to us. We become more connected to them. So I'm going to introduce our guest in a second, but please... Um, if you know someone or you think that this is something that you want to be a part of, you want to share your story, you want to share your thoughts, your, your experiences, please reach out to me and I would be happy to talk to you about it. My, uh, I just hope that you all can open your minds, open your hearts, and really think about that. Uh, our system and our society creates 
these lenses than which we see the world. And hopefully through this conversation, we'll have some of these lenses removed or opened up or just some space provided to be with each other in a more human and loving and powerful way. My guest today is, he's a coach, he's a speaker, he's a radio host. He hosts a show called Inspirational Perspective, which you can hear, it's in Chicago, but you can hear it anywhere on iHeartRadio at 1690 AM. He's also the creator of Murder Mediocrity, which is just such a cool title and very catchy. When I heard that the first time, I was like, that's a great um, branding and, and brand. And he helps people to live the best life possible. Welcome to Dream Mason Podcast, Leno Harris. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me, Alex. Appreciate it. Um, we don't, I like to say like, we, you know, we don't know each other very well. We've talked once. Mm -hmm. uh, we know people that know each other. But I have heard many wonderful things about you. Uh, but one of the things that sticks out into my mind is just your voice. Not the sound of it, but mm -hmm. the the way that you put it out into the world. So you were somebody that I was told that I should reach out to because you aren't afraid to share your opinions. You're not afraid to share your voice. You're not afraid to put yourself out there. And I admire that. I respect that. Uh, that's not true, man. I, it, it, no? I can't say that it's never, that well, I'm never afraid. Well, <laughs> I just, I, I say things because they need to be said. And sometimes it does freak me out. Okay. Um, but it needs to be said, and to me, that's the definition of courage. And so, yeah, just so people, because I, I think sometimes this whole notion of fearless or operating without fear is a, it could be something that uh, people believe they should function without fear. And so as a result, they don't do the things they should do afraid. Um, and a lot of what I do, a lot of what I say, uh, often I say it with some level of trepidation and fear, but I say it because I know it needs to be said. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate you putting that in because you're so right, right? We all feel fear, no matter how much work Absolutely. we do. Fear doesn't go away, you can't kill it. Um, I, wanna, I just wanna start with, I've been asking everybody when we start, you know, having this conversation to come on here and talk about race and diversity and share your personal stories for a lot of people, it can be confronting, it can be vulnerable. People, a lot of people don't want to do it of all different races. You know, it's not your responsibility as an African-American man to go around teaching everyone mm -hmm. a way that they should or shouldn't be. So, and, and I like to think it's, it's kind of scary for me as a, as a white man to call different people and say, hey, are you willing to come share your stories with me? Why do you think it's important? Like for you, why, why did you say yes? Why are you here? Why do you think it's important to actually have this conversation? Well, I think it's important, one, because race is a man-made construct. It's something that was created. Um, and, and previous to the early 1400s, maybe if we go back to the 1200s, this is just not a conversation we'd be in. Like if we were born back then and you and I encountered each other, we, we wouldn't be really consumed with the color of each other's skin. And so it's a man-made construct, which means that since it's a man-made construct, it can be destroyed. Anything that men create can be destroyed, right? Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of, of my, the opportunity I've had to, to visit different parts of the world 
where you actually see monuments and buildings that stood that were magnificent that are now just relics of the past, right? There's a space being held for that, that former building, that magnificent structure that, that is just now something that we remember. And I, I, I think about race very much in the same way that uh, my hope and prayer, and even in, in terms of the work that I do, one of the declarations I've made for, for my life is that I get to witness the destruction of race or the construct of race in my lifetime. And so that's the reason why I'm willing to be in these type of conversations. I love that example of like the, I've, I've been to Europe and places where you see these things that, you know, were magnificent and strong and sturdy and they're leveled to nothing. Um, yeah. see, it's a few stones yeah. with a plaque once stood here. <laughs> um, it's a great, it's a great, I don't know, metaphor analogy. Um, for you, for your experience, like, do you remember, you know, a, a moment, a first time where it showed up in your life that either something was different or like color of people's skin became apparent? Do you, do you have a time or a moment that that showed up for you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it happened to me in junior high. My my mom decided that we were, she was going to pull us out of the current school system and put us into a private school. And part of going to this private school, I played basketball and she's like the basketball coach wants to see you play. I had no idea that, you know, this was, you know, part of it was, well, can he play? Well, you know, subsidizing tuition, et cetera. I just was going to do what I, what I did, right. Play basketball. And for the first time I walked into a gym and it was full of white boys. And I, I remember thinking, huh, <laughs> this is weird. I mean, I've seen white people before. I just never saw them on a basketball court um, because I played with kids that look like me. Um, and that was my first encounter of like real encounter of race and also realizing like, whoa, wait a second. If I go to the school, this is going to be eerily different from my normal life. And right away, because it was different, I didn't like it. I was like, OK, I don't I don't want to go here. I don't I don't want to. I don't want to be a part of this school. I don't see anybody that looks like me. And that's my first recollection of an experience, like a visceral experience of race and difference. But it, even then it wasn't race. It was just that it was, everybody was different and it didn't feel comfortable. Um, even in terms of how they spoke, the language, uh, we all spoke the same language, just differently. Um, uh, how they held themselves, how they played basketball. <laughs> it's like, it's just different, right? And so uh, that's, that's, that was my very first experience with like the difference of race. And um, I had been exposed and even my parents had white friends, but it was, it was never where I was the minority. It was always where they were the minority. They were coming into my space versus me coming into their space. And so did, you, did you go to that school? I ended up going to that school and that was the first place where I encountered racism as well. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, uh, it was the first time I was called the N-word. And uh, I remember the interaction, it didn't go well. Because, uh, I, you know, <laughs> I I'm, I'm, uh, you know, grew up 
with my cousins on the west side of Chicago. I went to school uh, in the west suburbs. And one thing you knew is you didn't let somebody from another race call you that night, right? And so it quickly turned into a, like, immediately turned into a fight of, of, of some sort, which then here I am, the new kid in the school, and you're in a fight almost within the first few weeks. You know, it's just kind of like, okay. And I just remember being like, this is, I don't want to be here. I, you know, one, I don't want to be in a place where people are calling me names. I always felt like I could hold my own. Uh, but I just, you know, I just didn't like it. It was uncomfortable. And I just really wanted to go back to a place with people who looked like me, people who spoke like me, and people I felt comfortable with. Um, and even at the time, I, I knew it was a derogatory term. I don't think I understood the weight of it. I just knew that you weren't going to call me a name. And, and how I grew up is when you wanted to teach somebody a lesson, well, <laughs> it became physical. <laughs> That's what happened. I, I mean, I, I imagine, did it change that your experience with that school? You stay in schools for quite a while, often like a few years. Did, is this, was this an ongoing experience? No, it, it was actually the only incident. And the funny thing is the, the uh, kid who called me the N-word, him and I, even to this day, are still good friends. Um, and I, I think it's a, great, it's a great example of what I believe happens when you have two people who don't really understand or know one another uh, playing out the experiences of others. Like he was playing out the experience or something he had heard, right? Or he had saw in his own environment. Um, and for me, I was playing out my own experience and what and how I learned to defend myself when I heard those words. And over time, when we began to know each other on a more intimate level, like our relationship changed and we began to call each other friend. Um, and, and I think that when you look at what's happening in the world today, ultimately, I believe a lot of the a, a lot of what we're witnessing is a really a lack of understanding and a, and a what I would say, an unwillingness to learn and to, to really begin to dive into who we are as human beings more than anything. You know, I find, and I don't know if you have a lot of this in your life, um, and I've described it kind of in three groups just for simplicity so we don't have to expand into all the nuances. There's people that are overtly, that occurs overtly racist. Right, they, they they vocally or through their actions make it known that they're not a fan of people that are different from them. Yeah. By the way, I like to call those people people overtly ignorant and irrational. Okay. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we have a group in the middle who I think are people that think of themselves as good people. They would say things to you like, I've never said, I would never call someone the N-word. I would never not hire someone based on their race or their gender or whatnot. Um, and then we have people, I'd say, on the next, the last group who are aware that there's issues, there's problems. They're doing the work to shift themselves, maybe shift others and transform uh, these constructs and break it down to what you spoke to, to um, at the beginning. And by the way, let's go back to those groups because the group of people who who claim to uh, I'm not I'm not racist, um, I'm accepting of others. I would never not hire someone who didn't look like me for those reasons. One of the things I find often with this group 
is that uh, they lack awareness. They don't, it, it's, it's they believe what they're saying, but part of the reason they believe it is because they lack awareness. Um, and this is where implicit bias comes in. Um, they don't even realize that they've been subliminally uh, programmed to have fear, to, to in some ways walk lightly when it comes to people of you know different races, ethnicities, cultures, and backgrounds. Um, these are the same people who will volunteer to support and help um, underprivileged folks. And so as a result, when you, when you get into a conversation like this, they will fight vehemently and say, no, like that's not true. But unfortunately, every human being on the planet has, has bias. And these biases are informed by things that we grew up with, things that we've seen, things that we've listened to, all the inputs over our lifetime inform our biases. And our biases are knee, the knee-jerk reaction, like this is, you know, what I'm gonna do without even thinking about it. I'll give you an example. Um, I was, uh, I, had, I had lunch with a colleague and I had parked my car maybe two blocks away and the easiest way for me to get to my car was to cut through an alley. It was a fairly open alley, parking lots, things like that. I'm walking down the alley and it's, it's fairly, it was cooler. It was colder in Chicago back then. So I, ha I had a hoodie. And so to keep myself warm, I threw my hoodie on as I kind of run these two blocks to get to my car. And an older white gentleman happens to turn the corner walking into the alley as I'm walking down the alley. He sees me and I, and I notice him just stop like, oh shit, what do I do? <laughs> right? And right away I thought to myself, this is probably a really good guy. And he, he likely is not, by his, his terms, racist. But his, his, his bias is, which is why he paused when he saw a six-foot black man walking down the alley with a hood on, because he's been informed that men like that are dangerous. Um, and so even though overtly, like, you know, he would express like, oh, I don't, I'm not racist, I don't do anything racist, uh, his bias will always deny it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I actually just started reading last night um, Blind Spot. I don't know if you're familiar mm. with Blind Spot. And Blind Spot does a really great job of showing you like optical illusions. Yeah. How, and it takes it out of humanness, right? So it'll show you an optical illusion and basically explain how what to, to move the illusion will change the way we perceive it and how our brain basically works to take in information and basically give us an answer based on the information that it's always had from the past, essentially. And then it ties that, which I love, to the conversation of how we do that with humans, which I think is a, it's a really brilliant way to share it. Yeah. And yeah. I was thinking about, as I was reading, conversations, and I could do this with anything. I, we could do this with about black men, we could do this about blonde women, we could do this about Absolutely. you know regions, like we could do this about regions in the world, um, all sorts of things where if I say, if you're willing to be honest and I said something to you, you know, if I, if I made a comment about a region, a type of person, you have immediate things that show up in your mind. You might not say them, might not do anything about them, but they show up automatically without you doing anything, saying anything, because you're, that's your brain's job is to quickly get all that information and give it, give you an answer. Correlated, absolutely. Knowing that, when I was reading it, I was like, it had me have that thought of one of those like moments where you're like, oh man, 
how do we even change this? Like Where it's almost, yeah, like, I'm, well, can you say more about that? Because if it's, it's an instant reaction, what do we do with, what, in your opinion, like what do we do with that awareness? Like what do you do? Because we all have this, right? Like how do you catch yourself in these, when you find yourself being biased or in a blind spot like yeah. that? What do you do? Well, one, I think we have to first know that it exists, right? So the awareness that this does exist and and then once I'm aware, then I'm always looking for it. I'm looking for it to play out. I'm looking for it to to manifest itself. And when it does manifest itself, then I then I come at it with curiosity. Oh, why do I feel that way about this person? Why am I thinking like this about this person? Um, I don't know them yet. Hmm. That's you know that's uh, okay. I know where that's come from. I I know where I got that from. And you you kind of start to lay the planks or even. Um, identify the areas that informed you to create the bias in the first place so you can begin to address it at the root. And, and that's one of the ways we begin to, in, in some ways, unroot racism is by noticing our own bias and our own implicit biases and how we react or the knee-jerk reactions we have to things um, or even the, th- the, the, the simple thoughts or jokes we want to tell that we're like, mm, that's not appropriate. Like, oh, but that joke is based in the bias. And the fact that I thought it was funny means I actually, I'm playing into the bias. Oh, so what, what is that? And, and, and just getting curious about that more than anything. Yeah, I think it also gives us space to not be so hard or mean to ourselves, right? If we know that it's it's programmed essentially. I love the way you described it. It's like implicit bias is programmed by all the things that we've encountered in our life. That if I'm the man and I turn and see you running towards me or walking towards me in the alley and I pause, I, and I notice I could actually say, hang on, wait a minute. I had this reaction because of the movies I've seen or, you know, whatever, what parent, my parents taught me, or the fact that when I watch the news, most of the crime they show is that, you know, who knows, whatever it is. And then go, wait a minute, I don't actually believe that. This is just a guy walking through an alley, just like if I was walking through an alley. So I don't have to then beat myself up as, oh, because I had this thought, now I'm racist or I have to get defensive about it. I notice one of the things that's happening right now is- But you know, I do, I would say this, and I think this is one of the areas we have to be real with ourselves. We have to own racist thoughts. And we have to say, oh, wow, that was a racist thought. Huh. What's that about? And and get curious about it. And and one of the things I I noticed with my white brothers and sisters is like this this tendency to stay so far away from racism or even even admitting that they have any of it going on when the reality is that if you were born in the United States of America or, or Europe, You've been educated in the United States of America uh, from, you know, pre-K all the way up to 12th grade and, and, and even more that you in some ways have been indoctrinated in a racist system. It's impossible to avoid. As a matter of fact, this is one of the things that Jane Elliott, if you're familiar with her, talks about uh, quite a bit with, and she's a white woman who talks to a, a lot of white people. Um, she talks about this quite a bit to say, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that white people who want to be friends 
of, of others or anti-racist, one of the biggest mistakes they make is to say, I am not racist. Um, because even black folks, catch this, even black folks can have racist ideology because we've been brought up in the very same you know, system. We've been educated in some of the same places. And so how I think about my own brother that looks like me can sometimes be aligned with the American doctrine of black inferiority or brown or colored people inferiority. And so that's, that's one of the things I think that we have to like kind of, you know, like in coaching, right? When you have that, that conversation with your coach and you gain that new awareness about yourself when you're like, oh shit, I do do that. Or I am, you know, I, I, you know, I do need to transform this area of my life. Um, it's, I think the conversation about race is very much that same way where we have to get, we have to be willing to get uncomfortable and look at ourselves and say, well, wait a second. There's evidence of racism here. And so what am I going to do about that? And I think until we have, until our uh, brothers and sisters who aren't suffering from racism, by the way, I'm really trying to stop saying black and white because it, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's in the context of race. And I think it's one of the things that, again, you go back to you know, the 12th century, just wasn't part of the conversation. Like if you and I met in, 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 a, in a tavern in Spain or in Europe or, you know, and I was of obviously of African origin and you were of European origin, we, it would just be like, oh, he's from the South. And I'd be like, oh, he's from the North. <laughs> I mean, that would be it more than anything, right? I mean, of course there'd be still some social bias, but it wouldn't have been about race. Mm -hmm. And one person's uh, standing, economic standing, inferiority, uh, any of those things would not be part of the conversation back then. And so, uh, along with black and white. So the, the ultimate point I'm looking to make is we just have to become, we have to get, become courageously aware of our own thinking and bias and where racism might exist. And let, and let me, let me give this example in terms of as a black man, how it can show up for me. Um, so some time ago, this was some time ago, I, uh, the home I live in has a boil, boiler. And so we had some problems with the boiler and reached out to a buddy who says, oh yeah, man, I got a friend who knows how to handle boilers pretty well. I have him come over, he's a black man. So he looked at everything. He was like, okay, yeah, I see the problem here. Um, let me go ahead and, and clean these pipes out. You should be good. Cleans the pipes out gives me the price, I pay him, he leaves. 24 hours later, I'm having problems. And right away, I'm like, damn it, brother done got over on me, <laughs> right? And I'm like, you know, my brother got over on me. And I, I noticed it, I'm like, whoa, where'd that come from? Like, what does it have to do with the fact that he's a brother? You know, it, it, either he's a shady businessman or he's not, it has nothing to do with his color, yeah. nothing. But it, it was part of my thinking, because by the way, I've been educated in this system. And when I caught myself, I'm like, just call him back. Call him back. He's like, oh, you know, I thought that might happen. Let me get over there. Came over the same day, handled it. We haven't had problems since. 
right? But what I noticed was my own thinking against my brother based on his skin color in terms of how I've been informed and how I've been educated in this system that I've grown up in. That makes sense? Absolutely. I, I mean, I was thinking when you were sitting, when you were have, talking this whole time, I was thinking, I was trying to look at my own life, right? Like, where do I, where do I do this? And the first place that showed up for me was when I was single with women. There were certain women based on the way they looked. Some of it was race or back, like, or national origins that I felt like I had a better advantage with or less advantage or were afraid, more afraid of. And I could say, if um, to put it in, or to just put it in the racial conversation, I always like a bias or a racist thought would be if I was attracted to a black woman, that there was more fear. I had actual fear in that space because my the bias that's pr like programmed that I'm taught louder, bolder, more powerful, and 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 I don't, and I don't some of these are not complementary in the way that we learn them right it's not um and and i think about all maybe the times where i didn't actually and this is to my detriment too right my own bias or racist ideas prevented me from even getting what i wanted mm. so mm -hmm. not only were they a victim un unknowingly necessarily of my beliefs but i also was because i might have been attracted to them and afraid and i can see this with and if I flip it, there were certain types of, let's say, white women based on the way they looked. You know, maybe it was their skin color, maybe it was their hair, maybe it was their style, whatever, that I did the same thing. Now, racism wouldn't apply to like the clothes they were wearing or whatnot. But it's all kind of, you know, it's it's all um it's all it's all nonsense in a way that I'm that I'm not aware of, that I'm not being responsible for, that I'm not dealing with. Because, and I think even to the point where we're so programmed that throughout all this history of my life, I didn't even stop and think, like, why am I letting these beliefs control me? Yeah, you know? they're, they're all informed by something else outside of us. Mm -hmm. And typically it's our inputs. I mean, radio, television is huge, huge. I mean, think about the power of what we see and how it plays out. And these are characters, by the way. It's funny. Uh, I watch Insecure with my wife and, and one of the members of the cast just came out with a Netflix special. She's like, you wanna watch it? I'm like, nah. She's like, why not? Mm, I don't know, I don't like her. Why don't you like her? I don't like her character. Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with her. Like and when, I, when I was saying it to her, we both started laughing like, holy shit, wow. Like I completely created like a feeling towards the woman, right? Based on her character. Now what happened, like her character happens to be a black woman. What? So if I'm a man that doesn't have lots of interaction with black women and that becomes what I see, that character can inform me, that becomes a bias that now I have to deal with because, you know, I know married, being married to a black woman, she does not, she does, that doesn't align for all black women. So, it's interesting. We just have to constantly practice awareness. And we also, it, I, I like, like what you're saying, because it's making me think about how it builds on whatever we believe. So if I have this belief that certain group of people are a certain way, mm. 
And then to your, and then like to your plumber story, oh, now here's some evidence. Now it's not actual evidence. You would call, you caught yourself that it wasn't, but you could have made it evidence. Oh, see, why? And I think that's another great point that I haven't talked about much in these conversations is how we have these implicit bias or these beliefs or this racism, and then something happens and we make it fit. Like, I think a perfect example is I can't think of how many times I've been in cars with somebody where somebody drives poorly and then somebody makes a comment about how though they must be Asian and maybe they are, maybe they're not. But if they are, then it's like, oh, see. It informs the stereotype. Exactly. And if they're not, no one go, no one then takes points away from those old things. They just kind of ignore it. Yeah. Um, I know black folks that can't drive. I know white folks that can't drive. (laughs) I know, you know, it's like, but they got stuck with the stereotype somewhere, somehow. Yeah. Um, You know, you're a, you're a father and you haven't talked about your son at all. I'm curious on like, again, on a personal level, how you and your wife address race and bias and all this with your Mm. young son, especially in the climate in the world that we live in now. Yeah. Well, it's with intention. Uh, I think one of the things about systemic racism is uh, if we aren't careful, he will, he will get indoctrinated with this, this doctrine of, of, of black inferiority and uh, inferiority. Let me say that correctly. And, 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 um, and so I'm very, very aware of that. Uh, one of the things I experience often as a coach working with clients of color is this, you know, enough, not enough context, this cognitive distortion that I'm not enough. I have to work to prove myself. I have to perform. I have to do all these different things. And uh, I think understanding how psychologically that makes up who we are and how we perform in the world, one of the things that we've been really, really diligent with doing is one, surrounding him with people that from all cultures, um, but two, exposing him to media and, and things that look like him, uh, which, which has been somewhat difficult to do. Uh, and, and so we have to be very, very assertive and, and thoughtful and planful in terms of how we do it. I mean, all the way down to simple YouTube nursery rhymes and songs, right? Uh, and for him, it doesn't necessarily like it won't calculate quite yet um, until one day he gets into a race conversation and realizes like, wait a second, nothing I look at looks like, look, looks like me. Nothing I, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with looks like me. My books don't look like me. And so part of what we've done is to ensure that he does have books. He does have movies. He does have media. He does have um, characters uh, that look like him. Um, Because I think it's something that um, many, you know, in terms of uh, others don't have to think about per se. I mean, because the nursery rhyme is going to look like them, et cetera. And so we've been really thoughtful about that. And then um, ultimately just really, really, uh, I, I think for me, coming from a diversity background, I was a former chief diversity officer. And, and understanding the importance of that, especially as this world continues to evolve, um, ensuring that he is always surrounded with some level of diversity. You know, the ability to, to be culturally competent is, is I, I think cultural competence 
is, is definitely going to be the currency of the future. Um, because, I mean, we'll look at a few stats. Right now in the United States of America, people who are 30 years old or younger, the majority of them are people of color. Um, and so the demographics right here in the United States are drastically, quickly changing. And we can see that in terms of the support for the Black Lives Matter movement um, and uh, the support during the social unrest. And so that's, that's how I think about raising uh, my son right now. I just learned to, I think it was like 65% it was close to that. I might be off a little bit, but it was about 65% of, pe of people looking for jobs, people basically under the age of 40 that are looking for jobs will choose or not choose a job or weigh whether that this impacts whether they do choose a job based on the diversity of the company, based on the diversity of the leadership, which, I, you know, I, I've never worked in corporate America, so I've never even kind of thought about that. Uh, aside from coaching corporate America, like I never was up for a job in, the, in that world. But that's that's a shift and i think it was two by 2055 the majority of this like mm -hmm. the white whites will be a minority um as a as a as a whole um but you said you and you said something too that i thought was really made me think of something which is how you share your son like people that look like me and it made yes. me think about how and again, I never thought about this, right? Growing up a, a white kid in America, people that look like me do everything, right? I could be a baseball oh, yeah. player. I could be a Now, there might be less white people that are like basketball players or football players, but there are a lot of them, enough that I think I could do it. I also could be a banker, a CEO, a lawyer, whatever. And I just, when you were saying this, I had this thought about, man, if, if I was a young African-American kid growing up in America and I look at the world, well, yes, there was a black president and there's Oprah, but those are, that's a small, it's not like there's a lot of Oprah's or Barack Obama's. What right. I see if I look out in the world is, Oh, I could be a basketball player. I could be a musician. Like I can be a rapper. And somewhere in there, the con that conversation, I mean, this is just for my, me looking back going, Oh wait, it kind of stops. Cause I don't yeah. know that, as a, as a young African-American man or woman, you're thinking, oh, I could be a writer, I could be a doctor, I could be, you just, we just don't see that. Yeah. But you'd actually, like, I didn't ever even ever think of that until you were sharing that conversation. Oh, yeah, of and, and, and that's part of it, right? Because it, it creates a different level of possibility for him because he is exposed to you know, uh, African-American doctors. He is, he is exposed to African-American psychologists. He is exposed to African-American bankers. He sees stories of these people living their lives. And that's incredibly important to us because then that gives him a variety of things to choose from in terms of like, who, do, who is it that I intend to be and what do I want to create in the world? And, and one of the reasons why we see the level of unrest that we see today is because you have young people who in, in many ways have done everything they were told to do, right? I went to college, I got a degree. Oh, matter of fact, when I couldn't get a job after I got that degree, I went and got my master's degree. Um, I don't know if people know that African-American women are the most educated segment of people in the United States of America in terms of holding degrees, et cetera. 
right? But then when you look at unemployment in our community, it's also the highest. So here are a group of people who we've done everything you've asked us to do. And there's still no opportunity. You still won't hire me. And, and that's one of the reasons you see the way, the rage and the anger. Um, and I say, yeah, you get to be angry. You, you know, you, you get to be angry when you've done what you knew how to do and the formula still doesn't work for you, right? Uh, you, you get to be sad. You, you get to be mad. You get to be furious. And, and so I, that's one of the reasons we see the protests and, and we've seen them ongoing and we will continue to see them ongoing until something begins to shift. How, do you, how are you personally talking to people that you know that um, seem to find flaws in not the point to like the, the looters or the rioters or they point to um, people that talk about defunding the police, like how can we not have police? Like, I think these are, I think unfortunately, people will focus on the minority thing, right? Like looters and rioters are the vast minority of the people, most average person is peacefully protesting. The high majority of people are peacefully protesting. Absolutely. And the, um, when people are talking about defunding the police, people aren't saying, hey, let's just like go back to the Wild West where there's no, like, that's a, it's kind of a, it's almost like where we think of global warming. It's a bad term. Global warming sounds great. Who doesn't want warmth? Who doesn't like, it's just a bad marketing term. But how are you talking to people in your life of any race, gender, color about these things so they can be more open to it? Well, I mean, we're coaches. And I think one of the things we have as responsibility as coaches is to understand when there's a context at play, right? And so um, the need is we need, a, we, we need police reform. Um, now, and I think you're right, sometimes when you talk about defunding the police, then they have to, once you get the explanation, you're like, oh, okay, well, we're not taking all their money. We're just reallocating funds, right? We're, we're reallocating funds towards training. We, we're demilitarizing uh, police and, and we're actually putting a, a bit more of those funds into education and reform, et cetera. Uh, we're looking to take some of the, the dollars and move that towards training around mental health and mental illness. Or, or even bringing in people who are mental health and mental illness advocates that can support the police, et cetera. So I think one of the things we have to be careful of is, uh, and, and, and begin to educate people on, is the power or the lack of power when you move from one side of a context to the other. I'm, I'm not a fan of completely ridding our nation of police. I mean, we need some level of civility, and we need some level of uh, accountability, right? Accountability is incredibly important. I think we know that as coaches as well. Uh, however, I am a fan of getting rid of racist police. Um, and I think one of the best things that is happening is uh, a lot of them are, are self-disclosing by leaving. <laughs> I mean, when you have the chief of police, I saw this recently in, in Florida, who actually bends down in solidarity with protesters, and then half of the officers on the on the force resign because he knelt in solidarity with, solidarity with the officers. We don't need them. 
Uh, these aren't people that I think we want protecting and serving. They don't even get it, whether they're racist or not, right? Same thing in Buffalo, et cetera. And so I think we have to be careful in terms of using these terms without adequately talking about what it really means. Um, that's, I mean, in terms of police, you asked about another category there. Remind me. Um, hmm. Defund police. I asked about, oh, people that focus on like the, the looting, that get caught up in the looting and the rioting. Yeah, well, perfect example. There was a, there was a march in Harlem. Um, and part of the qualifications for coming to the march, you know, mostly men of color, and they asked them to wear a suit. Beautiful march, man. Beautiful march. I have friends in New York who went to this march. Um, it was something to see. No media coverage. Thank God for social media, right? Because I can show you pictures of it. But there was no media coverage. And so I think we have to remember that media is for profit. I mean, that's a for profit business. And I think it's one of the reasons I've always been a fan of publicly funded media, right? Because, you know, the kind of stories you get from publicly funded media are, are, are much clearer. They lack the sensationalism of paid media. I mean, they, they have advertising spots to fill. And I'm sorry, but peaceful protests don't fill advertising spots. <laughs> and I think sometimes as, as Americans, we forget how this country operates. I mean, it's the almighty dollar. What sells? And sensationalism sells. So guess what's sensational? Shit burning down. That's sensational, right? That gets people worried. That gets them all up in arms. And, 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 and what's not sensational is a, a bunch of folks peacefully protesting something that you think, you know, is going to persist and should go and, and, and may probably would never go away, right? Mm -hmm. That's not sensational. And so I think part of this is us as consumers of media getting better educated and asking more questions. We can't just believe what we see. Um, are there, were there rioters? Yes. Uh, was there looting? Yes. Is that, was it connected to the protest? No. And we just have to ask questions. And, and, and I think we all know too that there are other groups, other organizations that have been trying to take advantage of this whole movement, um, Antifa being one of them right? Um, they're anti-racist, anti-fascist. They just move in a different way. Um, and, and so they understand that this is a capitalistic system. And part of how you hurt capitalism is you begin to destroy the, the money structure, right? So you burn down buildings and you, you rob ATMs, et cetera. Um, and so I think we have to be, as individuals, more curious and educate ourselves better. I want to leave you with like a moment to um, you've been so generous to talk about like your own perspective, your own opinions. Um, I want to leave you with a minute to just speak about like whatever you have, you know, I, if there is something, maybe it, you know, what it's like, you know, your experience, what it's like to be you, but, but really anything you want that you want to share on this topic. Um, yeah. Wrap up. Well, well, here's what I would say. I would, I would challenge us all to really, like if, if this is something that you care about to really begin digging into history for yourself, I, I think this will, will help people understand the African-American plight in America. Um, 
I think it, you know, even digging into the construct of racism and how it started, you know, back with the Spanish Inquisition, uh, it was really to identify heretics. And the easiest way is, oh, well, Jews happen to be a little darker than the rest of us. Oh, Muslims happen to be from Africa and they're, you know, they're brown skinned. They're, they're more likely to be quote unquote heretics that don't believe in, in the, the teachings of the Catholic Church. And, and this is kind of how it all began. Right. And, and then the uh, and greed and money, economics with Christopher Columbus and, and others beginning, you know, uh, Cortez, et cetera, making their exploits into the Americas and and seeing people of color on the land and wanting to have access to the land, have access to the gold and the goods without any accountability. What do you do? You devalue those lives. And you say those lives don't matter. And, 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 and we can do what we want with those lives because they're pagans, they're not Christians. And, and so you have this, all of this kind of rooted up from, uh, from greed ultimately, right? And the, that greed permeated religion and made it okay to be or act in inhumane ways. And I think we have to come back to what started this. And so this is why when a person is a self-proclaimed racist, I go back to say, well, there's an ignorant and rational person. <laughs> because if you knew where racism came from, as a human being, you, you want to keep yourself as far away from that as possible. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is also understanding the plight of African-Americans in America. Uh, here is a group of people who, by the way, um, did not self-select to come to this country. They were kidnapped, stolen from a home. And that in itself, I mean, just think about right now. If somebody came into your home and basically tied you up, snatched you, put something over your head and, and then took it off and you're in a dungeon. And by the way, people around you are dying, they're not surviving, they can't eat. I mean, this is the plight of our African-American ancestors. And this pain and this trauma has been passed down from generations. So it went from the dungeon on the shores of Africa to the bottom of slave ships uh, crossing the transatlantic to centuries of slavery. And so you have a group of people that, you know, ha have been tr really trying to survive systemic racism and oppression for hundreds of years. And, and, and by the way, every time there seems to be an opportunity to breathe, right? Civil wars fall, the um, Emancipation Proclamation is, is, uh, provides some level of, of freedom. Well, most of the slaves didn't even know. And then for those who did, you know, where do you go? The 13th Amendment is written in a way that provides freedom to anyone who's not deemed a criminal. But by the way, Jim Crow black codes are written that makes a black man standing on the corner loitering loitering, quote unquote, a criminal. 
So my God, the man walks out the store. He just bought a pickle. I don't know why I chose a pickle, but he just bought a pickle. He's standing on the corner trying to figure out, am I going to go to my friend's house or am I going to go home? Someone walks up and says, you're loitering. Now he's part of a chain gang for the rest of his life. And so think about the role that you play as a matriarch in your own family as a man. I don't know if you're the oldest. I don't know if you're the youngest. But just think about your missing and the impact that would have on your family. Like all of a sudden, you're gone. They don't know where you are. And when they do locate you, they have no strength, no power to bring you back. And the pain. And then think about that happening over and over and over and over again in our community. And then from there, when there is some level of freedom, well, we can't snatch you and put you in a, a chain gang anymore. So you know what we'll do? We'll just string you up and lynch you. We'll just kill you. And by the way, many of these things are ignored. They're ignored, again, for centuries. The first, the first, the first uh, incident of domestic terrorism from the air happened to black people in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A black community that's thriving, they're taking care of themselves, they're, you know, they're farming, they're, you have doctors and dentists and living segregated like we were asked to. And as they begin to prosper more than their neighbors, jealousy crops up and they destroy the entire town and kill the people. And so these are things that have been per perpetrated on the African-American community for centuries. And then here we are. And to watch someone that looks like me, like whisper they can't breathe and call for their mom while a knee is on their neck. I mean, think about this, man. I mean, I do jujitsu and, and I mean, my trainer gets me in a move around my neck for 10 seconds, I'm tapping out. Nine minutes? Eight minutes and 46 seconds? It's insane. But it's indicative of what's been happening to African Americans in America since we've come on the shores. And the only way to change it is action. And it's not just action from us, but it's action from every human being on the planet that says to themselves, I don't want to be a part of a planet. I don't want to be, I don't want to be living in a century where this could have changed and I didn't do anything to change it. And so that's what I would share with the listeners. How can we each individually be the change that we seek to be to see the world? And it starts with us. It starts with tiny microaggressions. It, tar it starts with addressing our own implicit bias and getting curious about how we show up and, and then being courageous enough to correct those, to stand up to those around us that perpetuate this hateful ideology of racism. I was like, I don't, I don't know what to follow that with, except thank you, that was beautifully said. Um, Thanks for some of the historical. I talk often on this, on these conversations. I was a US history major that studied uh, racial problems in American history. 
And even doing that route of history, there are still tons of information that was left out. And oh, yeah. so thanks for, thanks for the education. Thanks for your generosity. Uh, thanks for the work you're doing with people, with your family. Um, thanks for having the courage to just come and share your story and your opinions. Um, I'm really grateful that you're open to this conversation, um, but that you're a leader. And because I think what you said at the very end was so, so powerful. Like, you know, I don't want to live in a world where we see thing, any, anything like we've seen happen to anybody. Like, it's not okay. And right now it's happening more and more to African-Americans than anyone else. That's like where the attention needs to be, but it's not okay, period. And um, so I love what you said. It's like, however you feel, like, do you want to live in a world where things like this are happening? And I, I think most people would answer, they don't. Um, what's the, uh, if people want to find you, reach out to you, besides your radio show, Inspirational Perspective on iHeartRadio, 1690 AM, um, where else can they track you down, find you, listen to you, whatnot? Yeah, they can They can follow me at Linnell Harris on all my social media outlets. It's at Linnell Harris for uh, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. The name is spelled L-I-N-A-L-H-A-R-R-I-S. Um, so that's how they can find me. The show airs at 7 a.m. Central Standard Time on, uh, uh, on WVON, 1690 a.m. Um, it's also on Facebook. And so they can also follow me on Facebook and, and catch the show live or catch the recording later. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming on here. Thanks for being who you are in the world. And um, yeah, it's great to have you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Honestly, I'm just a rebel who found a cause and has a dream. And I'm super grateful for your support. If you got anything from this, please help me out and share this podcast with one person today. You can find me at thedreammason.com or at inspirationalalex on Instagram. You are a dream mason because your dreams don't build themselves.